Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll invite you to look with me uh, just at verses 17 and 18. The text in the scriptures is verses 7 through 19, but um, we're going to focus on verses 17 and 18. So let me just have you look at those verses with me. And as we read them together, I I do remind you that this is the word of God. It is given to us as God's people for our good. So read along with me. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Let's pray together. Lord, um, please be with us as we again seek to think your thoughts after you. This is a terrifying passage to me, Um, profoundly humbling, but it is your word. And so grant us your help, your spirit, grant us your grace as we wrestle with it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, there, There are a couple of words in this text that are calculated to ruffle feathers, that um, cause the hair on the backs of our necks to stand up, obey, and submit. Obey your leaders. Submit to them in the Lord. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is, if you've been around this church for any length of time at all, it won't be a surprise to you. One of the reasons that this kind of passage causes the hair to stand up on the back of our necks, this admonition to obey and to submit, is because we are all born rebels. Right, Our first parents, we're going to talk about Adam and Eve tonight. I do believe that we had an initial set of parents, and our first parents rebelled, uh, failed to submit, weren't obedient, and, and they contracted a disease as a result, and they have passed that disease on to every subsequent generation. We are all rebels. And our rebellion really starts to show itself when anybody tells us to do anything, right? I mean, don't we, have you ever had to teach a child to be disobedient? Right? I mean, we spend so much of our time trying to teach our children to be obedient. They know how to be disobedient. They've got the virus. They have the illness. And so do you, and so do I. But I think there's a second thing. 
Um, and I, I don't have as much time to talk about this this week as I might uh, in weeks to come. But I think there's a second reason uh, why we particularly have a tendency toward rebellion in this culture. And this might surprise you, but I think that natural tendency toward rebellion is actually sort of given some permission and ends up sort of being woven into the fabric of the way we do life in this country by virtue of the context out of which this very nation was born. Right? We were rebels. We were a nation of rebels. A response to an oppressive government that was robbing people of their rights and their liberties and their freedoms and woven into the very fabric of life in this culture is a kind of permission to rebel. A kind of a permission to move in the direction of being autonomous and independent. And a kind of permission that says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what authority you have in my life. If you tell me to do anything, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Now, why do I think that? Well, I just started reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson by Joseph Ellis. And it's fascinating. And I just, I just want to read one little passage to you from very early You're going to be hearing, I'm afraid, a lot about Thomas Jefferson in the next two or three weeks until I get this thing finished. But I just want to read one passage for you. And it's a commentary on the words that appeared in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, words that Thomas Jefferson penned and with which we are all familiar. But here's the comment. Actually, these are not quite the words Jefferson composed in June 1776. Before editorial changes were made by the Continental Congress, Jefferson's early draft made it even clearer that his intention was to express a spiritual vision. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal and independent. That from that equal creation, they derive rights inherent and unalienable. And among these are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And then Ellis goes on to to say this. When these words are stripped of the patriotic haze, read straight away and literally, two monumental claims are being made here. The explicit claim is that the individual is the sovereign unit in society. The individual is sovereign. Now, I'm not going to read any more. I'll give you more in the weeks to come. 
But let's just, let's just stop there and, and sort of ask ourselves this question. Isn't, it that, isn't that a kind of a permission, a, a kind of a permission that is ensconced in the Declaration of Independence that actually encourages me to assert what? My individual sovereignty. My individuality. What do we believe as Christians? We believe, don't we, that there is one eternal and true sovereign. And that one eternal and true sovereign is the God of heaven and earth, before whom all are obliged to bow, before whom all are obliged to render obedience, before whom all are obliged to entrust themselves as creator and redeemer. It's a stunning thing. Now, when you come to words like these words, obey and submit, in Hebrews chapter 13, those words just, there's a dissonance about them. There's something about those words that stirs up something in us, both I think is a function of who we are as sons and daughters of Adam, but also because of who we are as sons and daughters who have lived in this country and have benefited greatly from its freedoms and drunk deeply of its core values. You understand what I'm saying? But what we want to remember is that this country was founded, these words were penned, in the context of a particular understanding of power and a particular understanding of the use of that power. And here's my point, and I don't have a ton of time to elaborate this, but I sure want to try. When you step out of this culture in which we find ourselves and you step into the culture of the kingdom of God, what you find in the culture of the kingdom of God is an entirely different view of power and the exercise of it and consequently a completely different view of what obedience and submission are all about. When we step out of our world, which is what we do, I've suggested this to you, when we step out of our world, this world in which we live and move and have our being, our particular cultural moment, and we step into the culture and world of the kingdom of God, we step into a world in which power and the exercise of it and consequently obedience and submission are completely differently understood. Let me show it to you quickly with a general principle, a specific example, and then briefly try to work out some implications. What's the general principle? The general principle is this. The God of the Bible the God who is the creator of everything that exists, the God who is infinite in power and glory, the God who is limitless in wisdom and beauty and loveliness, that God is a self-giving, 
and self-denying God. He is a self-giving and a self-denying God. Point. He is very, very different from George III. He is very, very different from Robert Mugabe. And he is very, very different. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I know that a week from tomorrow is the 4th of July. I will celebrate. I will give thanks. I want to live here. I've been in Tanzania. I don't want to live there. I couldn't live there. Don't misunderstand. But this God is very, very different from the United States Congress. I don't want to live anyplace else. The only place I would rather live is under the full, complete, and final expression of the lordship of King Jesus because his kingship is so very different from the kingdoms of this world. It is self-giving and it is self-denying. Let me show you why I think that. Think of the things that you hear in the gospel or in the gospels as the father interacts with the son. Matthew 3, 17 is the baptism of Jesus. Now again, you, um, boy, you know, we, we tend to sanitize the Gospels. We tend to sanitize the incarnation. You know what I mean by that? We, in our minds, in our sort of mental houses, we tend to send the incarnation to the dry cleaners to clean it up. But let's think about what it is we encounter in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 at the baptism of Jesus. This is God incarnate who has taken to himself a nature just like yours in every respect. I'm not, I'm not going to enumerate the specific ways in which that nature is exactly like yours. I'll enumerate some of them. He was a baby. He needed to be changed. He needed to be fed. He got dirty and needed to be cleaned. At his baptism, he had come from an obscure place. He had come from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the word on the streets about Nazareth. His parentage was questioned. Read John chapter 8. As you get to the end of John chapter 8, you will hear the Jews asking Jesus about his father. Why do you suppose that is? Because the word was on the streets that his mother was pregnant without a husband. A scandalous thing. Punishable by death. You understand what I'm saying? 
And at his baptism, coming with all of that baggage, lacking an earthly father, the shame associated with it, coming from Nazareth, a place of no reputation and even a negative reputation, coming with a true humanity, just like yours, wed to his real and true divinity. The Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. Do you get that? Look, it's one thing to delight in a child that makes straight A's. It's one thing to delight in a child and broadcast your delight to your neighborhood and to the whole world when your straight A child who scores 1592 on SAT tests and receives letters from Harvard and Duke and Stanford and the University of Michigan. You herald those things. You trumpet those things. You proclaim and announce those things. My kids got letters from Valencia Junior College. This is my beloved son, the consummate nobody. the supreme ordinary person in whom I delight. Do you see what God is doing at the baptism of Jesus? Do you see that that the Father is conferring upon the Son dignity? Do you see that the Father is in fact drawing attention away from Himself drawing attention away, in fact, from his own glory and is conferring that glory upon his incarnate son. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. It happens again at the transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. You see, you begin to get an understanding. You begin to get a catch a glimpse of how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdoms of the world. Who gladly, willingly wants to draw attention away from himself or herself so that attention might be given to someone else, so that glory might be conferred upon someone else? doesn't work that way in our world, does it? Look, we can say that we don't want to be the center of attention. We can say that we don't want to have all of those eyes turned toward us. Why in the world do we have mirrors? We have mirrors because we want to be sure that when we go out into the world and all of those eyes do turn in our direction, we reflect glory. The Father, the Father, in a sense, 
divests himself of his glory and confers it upon his incarnate son. John chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 12 is the third place where the Father speaks, where the heavens are opened up and a voice is heard. John 12, verses 27 to 32. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered and others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come For your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is Jesus saying in those words? He is responding to what the Father has said when the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. How does the Father glorify his name? He glorifies his name by exalting the glory of the Son. In John 17:1, Jesus says, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And how is the Son Glorified, so that the Father might be glorified in the cross, in the cross, and then in the ascension. I believe when Jesus refers in this passage to being lifted up, he's referring to both things. He is referring to being lifted up on the cross where the sin of his people is atoned for, and where the glory of the Father is made manifest. The Son is glorified in the cross, but I believe that he is referring as well to his ascension, where he is lifted up on high and is given all authority and all power over all flesh that he, Jesus, might give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. That's John 17, 3 and 4. The Father seeks the glory of the Son. And in seeking the glory of the Son, the Father ends up being glorified. What does the Son care about? What is the Son interested in? Let me give you three passages. I I wish I had an hour for each one. John 8, 25 to 29. And John 8, 48 through 51. But let me read the third one. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 to 28. This is that fabulous, hopeful, gospel passage that deals with the resurrection. 
Listen to this, verse 23. As Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, he, he refers in verse 22 to Adam, that in Adam all die, but that in Christ all will be made alive. And then verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Let me tell you what's going on in this passage. It's a working out of what Jesus alludes to in John 17. The Father has given Jesus all authority, and he has given that authority for one very specific reason, that he, Jesus, through his life and then his death and his resurrection and his rule and reign, might give life to all whom the Father has given him. And when he has given life to all those whom the Father has given to him, the end will come. And when the end comes, here is the stunning thing. This is a thing you don't see in the kingdoms of this world. Very, very rarely do you see this in the kingdoms of this world. When the end comes, the Son having fulfilled the purpose for which he received the authority and power in the first place, will return that authority and power to the Father. Who do you know who in the interest of the glory of another divests himself of authority and power? Jesus does. He returns it to the Father after he has employed it for the purpose for which it was given. And what is the Son doing in that? He is seeking the glory of his Father. You see? The Father seeks the glory, the exaltation of the Son. The Son seeks the glory and the honor of the Father. And what do you think the Holy Spirit does? Read John 16. Jesus says, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will take of mine and He will disclose it to you. He will not speak on His own authority, but He will glorify me. You see what happens in the Trinity? Here is this eternally self-giving, self-denying other-glorifying God, the Father who glorifies the Son, the Son who glorifies the Father, the Holy Spirit who loves to glorify the Father and the Son, taking delight in their glory. Where do you find that among the kingdoms of this world? Joseph Ellis has written another book. He's written a book on the presidency of George Washington, he argues in that book that one of the most startling things about Washington's presidency is that at the end of two terms, he voluntarily relinquished power. It just doesn't happen, but it does in the Godhead. You see, power 
in the Godhead exists differently and is employed differently. And what is the supreme example of that? That's the general principle. The God of Christianity, exceedingly glorious, worthy of our praise, the God of the Bible is a self-giving and self-denying God. That's the general principle. And what is the supreme example of it? Isn't it the cross? Let me just read Philippians 2. And we'll work out a couple of implications. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, listen to these words. You really don't need a preacher to understand them. You just really need the Holy Spirit to live them. I do. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, he was found in human form, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. What is the supreme example of an elder? What is the supreme example of a deacon? It is Jesus Christ, who did not regard his position, his power, his authority, things to be clutched, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of glory. He emptied himself of power. He emptied himself of authority. He emptied himself of all of his rights, prerogatives, and privileges in submission to the Father's will for you and me. To death. Even the scandal of death on a cross. So what's the big principle? The God of the Bible the God of Christianity, is a self-denying, self-emptying God. And the great illustration of it is the cross. So when this God calls you, when this Jesus calls you to submit to elders, to deacons, when this God calls you to obey your leaders in the Lord, you understand that this Jesus is not calling you to do anything that he is not first willing to do himself. And my brothers, elders and deacons in this church, you understand with me 
that when Jesus calls us to these offices, he calls us to love and serve these people in the same way and to the same extent that he has loved and serves you. Self-denying, self-giving, even to the point of death. And let me just work out this one implication, okay? Brothers, I am crushed by this and by the weight of it. And in Hebrews 13, 18, I am reminded that I have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ of how I have lived in this office. That is a desperately sobering and humbling reality. So my brothers, our first instinct, our first motion is in the direction of Jesus before whom we will stand begging him, pleading with him for his grace and mercy and power to fulfill the duties of these offices. And my dear friends, my dear friends and members, regular attenders of Christ the King, if you should ever be inclined to complain about your officers, you've got plenty of reason to. Okay, I'll be the first one to acknowledge it. You've got plenty of reason to. If you want more reasons, ask us. We'll give them to you. But if you are ever inclined or disposed to complain, let me encourage you to remember these two verses. And rather than complain, be reminded and say to yourself, Oh my goodness. These men must answer to Jesus for what they do in these offices. They need my prayers. So, much more that could be and should be said. But I plead with all of us that we plead with Jesus looking to him for the grace to lead and serve and for the grace to follow and submit to the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Father, there is no God like you. No God like you. No God who gives up glory and power and authority who comes in weakness and frailty, putting us ahead of himself. Grant us all grace to live that way. Dear Jesus, please grant me grace to live that way as a pastor. Grant Zach and Glenn, Jim and Andy, Stan and Mike, Bob and Clayton, grace to live that way. To the praise of your glorious name. Amen.